0: I speak for my wife Laura and myself as I say we are very glad to be back here by the way Laura is the pretty lady in the red dress back there by Kim hold up your hand Laura please (laughs) and if you haven't gotten acquainted with her I hope you will had the privilege of being here brother McKee tells me it was in 1995 I didn't go back and look for a mission seminar over a weekend and certainly enjoyed that and appreciated getting to know the congregation at that time As you have already heard, have known the Smiths for a long time, have known the uh, Bakers, Cacklemans, and uh, obviously Terry and his family, and we're so glad for our association with those families in time past, and glad you have taken Terry and Kim in and uh, made them feel very welcome here. We also have Terry's daughter, Chelsea, and her husband with us this morning from Texas, and we're glad they are here do appreciate very much the opportunity of being here. Hugo McCord died, I guess, maybe eight years ago, nine, something like that. He was a very well-known and respected scholar in our brotherhood. He wrote an article in uh, the June issue of Vigil Magazine in 2002. And he began it with these words. A wearied gospel preacher asked me to write an article in defense of the restoration concept. Because, he says, numbers of our schools and churches and professors are changing what we have always believed and preached. I think that's true. I gave evidence of that at the last hour. Brother McCord published that article, the requested article, in that same issue of Vigil and I'm speaking on that topic today, the restoration concept. I will use a couple of illustrations from Brother McCord, and I appreciate very much that article, but the structure of this lesson and the scripture base will be my own. In the first place, notice, please, the term restoration. What is a general definition of the term restoration? Well, Funk and Wagnall's dictionary says something like this, the act of restoring a person or thing to a former place or condition. Like, for example, I have a friend, colleague at Fried Hardiman, who restores old cars. And he might take an old Mustang, and maybe it's got a bent up fender or two, and he tries to go and get a fender maybe off of that same model car just as nearly like it as he possibly can to put that thing back in its original condition. The truth is, the term restoration doesn't appear very many times in the Bible itself. After Jesus' resurrection, the disciples did ask Jesus, this is Acts 1 and verse 6, is that at this time you will restore the kingdom of God. Now very probably they were thinking about him restoring Israel to the situation where you had the the tie between the government and the religion, and uh, they had David on the throne and that sort of situation. That's what they were thinking of. But still it means, will you take it back to its original state? Also, on other occasions in the Old Testament, obedience to God's law, including worship, had been completely ignored and had to be restored. For example, in the 7th century before Christ, Joshua was the, was the king of Judah. I should say Josiah was the king of Judah. And during his reign, he was a very young king when he took over, I believe, eight years old. And during his reign, they actually had lost the Pentateuch, the book of the law. And 2 Kings 22, verse 8 says they found it, and they brought it to Josiah. And they needed repentance. They had lost the plan that God had given them and had not been observing it. And so it called for repentance. And in 2 Kings 23, and verse 3... The king made a covenant to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments, and all the people entered into the covenant. The idea was restore what we should have been doing all along. Let's get back to what's good and right. In fact, in the Old Testament, even the tent of the tabernacle had to follow a very specific pattern, as you recall. And so, God warned Moses, See that you make all things according to the pattern. That is also quoted in Hebrews, the 8th chapter in verse 5. So few would doubt that there was a pattern for worship, for spiritual worship in the Old Testament times, even down to what kind of an animal you had to offer for what particular sin. Thus, when that pattern was forgotten, you had to go back and look at the pattern and restore it, bring it back to its original state as in the time of Josiah. So if very few would deny that there is a pattern for worship in the Old Testament. But what about in the New Testament dispensation? Was there ever to be a form or a pattern for the church and its worship? That is, is there a pattern that one might depart from that would need to be restored? Now it is true, as we've already said, or indicated at least, that in the New Testament, the civil government is not controlled by God directly, and it's not tied to our worship. But does that mean that there is no divine pattern for the church and its worship? Some brethren are ridiculing the idea of pattern today. I believe they are wrong. As we get into the body of the lesson, let me affirm first of all that there was a pattern given in the first century for the spiritual kingdom of God. In the first place, notice that the apostles were Holy Spirit guided. Before Jesus went back into heaven, he said in John 16 and verse 13, the last months of his early life, But when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Notice, please, he was to guide them into all truth. And then as we mentioned at the earlier hour in Romans 6 and verse 17, Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, you have obeyed from the heart that form of teaching to which you were committed. The term form is from tupos in the Greek. Arden Gingrich at page 837. That's a Greek dictionary, of course. Say that that term tupos means that pattern of teaching. We are to follow that pattern of teaching. Thayer, in his definition, he's another Greek dictionary, of course. That teaching which involves the sum total of religious doctrines. In fact, that's why the apostles, because we do have a pattern. That's why the apostles say we are to watch very carefully what we see and hear from them. And follow it. It is Paul who says in Philippians 4 and verse 9, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, it is true that there in Philippians, the fourth chapter, the context is purity of personal life. You see that in verse 8. But in verse 9, it is also true that he broadens the principle and he says, Whatever we have learned and received, that is, from the apostles directly, we are to follow. Whatever we have heard indirectly, that is, probably through their writings, whatever we have seen them do is to become an example for us. And we are to follow that. We have seen them. We can know what Paul did by what is found in the writings that we have from Paul. If we do that, then God will be with us. It is clearly implied if we do not do that, God will not be with us. In fact, now we come to a few specific examples of patternism in the apostles' teaching. What do we see in the apostles? What do we hear from the apostles? We mentioned it earlier in the first lesson, but I want to go into it in greater detail at this hour. Number one, in the area of women leading in worship, Paul restricts them. He says they are not to do leading assembly type worship. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, at verse 35, he says, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church, that is, leading assembly type speaking, she is not to do. He goes ahead in the very next verse and says, verse 36, was it from you the word of God first went forth? The answer to that rhetorical question is obviously not. It came forth from the inspired apostles. It came from Jerusalem. It came from Peter and from me, Paul. And you have only that authority which you get from us. In fact, it's interesting that even the Catholic Palmarini in one of his commentaries says that Paul here means, quote, The gospel was first preached from Jerusalem as was prophesied in Isaiah 2 and verse 3. Therefore, the Corinthians need to conform to that message which came from the antique churches, especially the church of Jerusalem. That is, they need to conform to the message given by the inspired apostles. The pattern was being ignored at Corinth, and Paul rebukes them for it. In fact, in verse 38, he continues, If anyone does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. Very probably, he is saying he is to be rejected and withdrawn from. As the Protestant Proctor says in his New Bible Commentary, this is a clear claim of inspiration on Paul's part. End of quote. So not only do we have a pattern... We have a pattern which is inspired. It comes from God. But in the second place, what do we see in the apostles in the area of church organization? What do you find in the Holy Scriptures about that? In Acts 14, at verse 23, Paul and his co-workers were on the first missionary journey. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they commended them to God. Will you please notice a plurality of elders in each congregation was appointed by these brethren as Paul was led inspired of God. Likewise, in Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul writes to the Philippian church, and he says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers. Overseers plural, and overseers is another term that means the same as elders, by the way. In Titus 1 and verse 5, Paul writes to the young evangelist, Titus and says, I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And then he gives him in chapter 1 the qualifications for those elders, which are basically the same as the ones you find that he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. Clearly there was a divine pattern here. Plurality of elders according to specific qualifications to be selected in each congregation. Not too long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who lived in Texas at the time. And I knew that he had a congregation of about 100 members that had been established for about 10 years. And I knew there were several men in it who had been elders before and were qualified to be elders, but they didn't have an eldership. And I asked him, Bud, why don't you have an eldership? He said, well, they say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I said, Brother Bud, I believe if you look carefully at scripture, you will find that it's broken. Because in Titus 1 and verse 5, he said to Titus, Set in order the things that are lacking, the things that remain, depending on the translation that you, you have of the, the scripture, Titus 1 verse 5. The pattern is, we are to have elders if they are qualified men. If we don't have qualified men, we need to develop them. And we need to put them in place, that's a part of the platter, pattern. But in a third area, what do we see in the area of music and worship? Now, in the Old Testament, God did authorize mechanical instruments of music. I've heard some of our preachers deny that. That is not a proper denial. In 2 Chronicles 29, at verses 25 and following, that passage says, King Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad, the king's overseer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophet. Then on down at verse 28, While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded. All of this continued until this burnt offering was finished. So there was a command from the Lord to use, in certain situations, instrumental music in the Old Testament, just like there was a command from the Lord to use burnt offerings in the Old Testament, animal offerings. We shouldn't deny that was the pattern in the Old Testament. So the apostles were raised in that Jewish religion, and they were used to doing that. But what about when they come to New Testament times? As the more perfect spiritual law of the New Testament is instituted, we have a more spiritual pattern. It's the perfect law of liberty, after all. In the New Testament, the heart is to be the instrument. One of the passages, as you well know, is Ephesians 5, verse 19. Paul says it this way, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. By the way, music historians agree it was about 600 years that Christians from the very first get-go in Jerusalem, they did not use instruments of music. And only slowly was it brought in after that. There is a pattern here too. What do you see and hear in the apostles in the area of music and worship? Only singing. Some people would say, as I suggested at the last hour, but that is so Subjective. It's so arbitrary that you say you can't use instrumental music. I don't think it is. I addressed that some at the previous hour. But let me notice another example. I think it's very interesting to see a modern-day development among Protestants. I'm speaking specifically of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of America. Here about 20 years ago, because of the entertainment craze, this particular denomination, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of America, their preachers, several of the leading preachers, became very concerned that people were wanting to be entertained in worship all the time. And they commissioned one of their own scholars, whose name was and is Brian Schwertley, to do a deep study of that situation. In 1996, he published a book that I have. It's called Musical Instruments, in public worship of God. You want to hear his conclusion? By the way, he had absolutely no connection with us at all. He said, as he concluded that lengthy study, page 16, God may not be worshipped in any way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. It has to be authorized. Plus, down at page 23, he said this, he said, Christians have no more business using instrumental music than using priestly vestments, incense altars, and a sacerdotal priesthood. End of quote. No connection to us whatever. Probably didn't even know about us, but he comes to exactly the same conclusion as a result of studying the Word of God. Not only do we have a pattern, it is an understandable pattern. It is not an arbitrary conclusion. It is a matter of respect of God's authority. In the Holy Scriptures. Further, a pattern in our worship is also implied by warnings against turning away from the truth. There are many of them in the New Testament, as you know I'm sure. Notice please one of them with me. 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 and following. Paul there writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. End of quote. There is a standard pattern. By the way, if you're looking at the text, look at verse 3. There it's called sound doctrine. In verse 4, it's called truth. It is truth or sound doctrine. It is a pattern that some will turn away from, he says, verse 4. And you can't turn away from a pattern if you don't have a pattern. So the conclusion is, if we fall away from the pattern, we need to go back and look at it again. And we need to come back to it and restore that pattern. There is a pattern of sound doctrine. Elsewhere, the same Paul will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. And this is the RSV translation. Follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Indeed, point number one, a pattern was given by the inspired apostles. That we have penned down, I believe. But now the question comes... Can we restore that pattern today? Is it possible or impossible to restore it? My answer is point number two, we can restore it. And the way we restore it is by planting the same seed. In Luke the eighth chapter, you find the seed is God's word. Jesus is speaking of the kingdom in parables you will find in verse 10 of Luke eight. And then in chapter eight and verse 11, he says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. implied it's the seed of the kingdom. In Matthew the 16th chapter, verses 18 and following, Jesus speaks to Peter. And Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Lord and as the Messiah. And Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. By the way, did you notice this? He talks about the church. Peter's going to help him build a church. And then in the very next verse, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom so you can help me build it. Do you get the impression there's some relationship between the church and the kingdom? There is indeed. The church on the earth is the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. So the word is the seed of the kingdom or the seed of the church. And elsewhere we learn and know that the word will abide forever. It is in 1 Peter 1 at verse 25. The King James translation reads this way But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The word is always going to be around. I dealt directly with Catholicism for 16 years in Italy. And there was much of the dark ages, particularly when the Roman Catholic Church tried to squelch the word of God and get rid of it. They were never able to do it. It is always going to be around. But of course, in order for the seed that is the word to germinate, that seed must be planted in human hearts. Notice some of the apostles planting it in human hearts. In 33 AD, approximately, at the beginning of the church... Peter, among others, preaches on the day of Pentecost there, and he planted the word in Jewish hearts. And you know what came up, don't you? The church came up, of course. In Acts 2 and verse 36, he said, Men of Israel, listen. This Jesus you thought was an imposter is not an imposter at all. He is really the Son of God. You need to repent and be baptized. And verse 41 says, On that day 3,000 of them did just that. And the Lord was adding to their number, if you read the King James, it says church there. The Lord was adding the church day by day, those that were being saved. Now, the truth is, the word church is supplied by some translators. It's not in the text there. So, how do we know it's talking about the church? Well, because a little bit later in Acts, the fifth chapter, and verse 11, the same group is spoken of as the church. And great fear came upon the whole church as in the original text. The term is in the original text in chapter 5 and verse 11. So at Jerusalem, you see, the word of God is planted by Peter in Jewish hearts. And the church comes up. Not a denomination, and I don't want to be unkind to anybody. God loves all people, and I try to love all people. But that doesn't mean they're in a right relationship unless they obey. And so the word of God is planted in Jewish hearts in Jerusalem, 33 A.D., And the church comes up. Now let's move to another continent. We're now in Europe, 20 years later approximately. Another apostle, it's Paul this time, and he's in Corinth and he plants that seed in the hearts of Gentile people here. And guess what comes up? The church comes up. Acts 18 and verse 5, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, that same word, get it, solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. So we have the same word, the same seed. And in Acts 18 and verse 8, And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Exactly the same response as you had at Jerusalem 20 years earlier. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, He writes to that fledgling church, And he addresses it as the church of God which is at Corinth. So you have exactly the same result as you had at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Though those were Jews, these are Gentiles. That was 20 years earlier. A different apostle, but the same seed is planted. And so it is evident when the same word is preached, it can be understood at Jerusalem or at Corinth or at Ephesus or in Montgomery, Alabama or wherever else. Now the word, by the way, can be adulterated as we saw at the earlier hour and changed by men. And then it produces a different result. In 1 John 4 and verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There were in the first century false teachers and false doctrines. We don't like to have to say it, but there are in this century false teachers and false doctrines. How do you distinguish? How can you know if they're true or false? Some seem so nice and so pious In other words, I believe it is implied clearly that in all essential elements, we can understand God's will if we study carefully and if we are alert. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and verse 17, it's the same Apostle Paul who says this, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Does that imply that you can understand it? Would God tell you to understand something you couldn't understand? Absolutely not. That's very clear. Number two, then, we can restore the true church. How do you do it? By planting the same seed, which is the truth, the word of God, not distorted. And now we move in the third place to some modern-day examples of restoration through seed planting. Will you notice with me, first of all, material seeds and what we see in that realm? Brother McCord, in the article that I mentioned earlier, tells about something that happened way back in the history of our country in 1853. He tells of a member of the church in Illinois by the name of Louisa Borden, who was a member of the church there, and she married a gentleman by the name of David Denny, also a member of the church, and after their marriage, they moved to Washington State. Brother McCord says that Louisa loved her sweetbriar roses there, and she grew them in Illinois and she knew that out in Washington state they didn't have any. Now, I don't know anything about horticulture, but I understand that sweetbriar roses are a five-petal rose with a yellow seed center, a rose that grows from a seed. And she knew there were none out on the West Coast. She went there in the 1850s. But Brother McCord was living out there when he wrote the article in 2002. And he said she brought the seeds out. She was the first one to plant them. And now all around the Puget Sound area, when he wrote, he said, There are sweetbriar roses. Same seed, same plant, even though planted thousands of miles away. Let me give you another example of material seed planting. About 1980, Jim Waldron, a missionary for Churches of Christ, lived in Karachi, Pakistan. And he read this item in the Karachi Morning News. Quote, Chickweed seeds, believed to be about 1,500 years old, have been found in an archaeological dig in Japan. And a report out of Mito, Japan, says the seeds were planted by scientists in a hothouse and new plants came up, though they were 1,500 years old. Same seed, same plant, after 1,500 years. But even more enduring than that material seeds, those material seeds, is the spiritual seed of God's word. Remember what Peter says about it? We noticed it a moment ago, 1 Peter 1 and verse 25. It lasts forever, it will endure forever, God's word will. Now let's note some examples of spiritual seed planting. About 1892, a fellow by the name of J.M. McCaleb went to preach in Japan have you ever heard of him maybe not but I'll bet you've sung his song the gospel is for all you look at the byline and see who wrote it J.M. McCaleb stayed nearly 40 years over in Japan by the way he got cut off by one of his churches back here and they said well we've decided we're going to deal with uh, just converting the heathen here at home And so they cut off his support and he had to go into secular work. And Brother McCaleb wrote that song. And in the second verse, have you ever noticed, Say not the heathen are at home beyond we have no call, for why should we be blessed alone? The gospel is for all. Well, to make a long story short, he preached only the Bible as the seed there in Japan for several decades. In fact, in one article he tells that he was preaching in four different Tokyo parks. And then several years after he began his preaching, he writes back and says, there are now four churches of Christ in Tokyo with 654 Christians worshiping. Oh, he was preaching in a different language too, preaching to a different culture. But the same seed, when it's planted, brings forth the same plant. Again, kindly, I want to be saying this, but no denomination came up just the church of the Lord, just Christians. You see, you can't find those denominations in the word. Let me give you another example of spiritual seed planting. This happened in about 1946. A Protestant in the town of Maurerlai, India, whose name was Karluki, became dissatisfied with what he was hearing from a particular Protestant church that he was a member of. And he decided he was going to go back and study that Bible for himself. By the way, all of this is confirmed. I frequently go down to Trinidad and work with Parker Henderson, who was there until just recently. And Parker Henderson personally met this man. And I talked with Parker about this. These are facts. Well, he became dissatisfied with that Protestant doctrine, particularly with infant baptism. And with other protestant doctrines and he began searching that new testament and finally he said to himself well i'm going to do i'm going to read until i find a command that i know refers to me and that i'm going to obey it if i haven't pretty good way to approach things isn't it well he decided he hadn't been baptized scripturally and so he asked someone else he confessed his faith in christ and was immersed into christ Several years later, when some of our brethren in about 1960 went over, one of the brothers who went over, I personally know, his name was Phil Elkins, they found eight churches that man had established with just the Bible, eight churches and over 200 Christians. We would have called him, or Protestants would call him a lay person, but he had been teaching the truth and baptizing people. And they were practicing almost exactly the same things that you practice in your congregation here. There was one exception. They were not partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. But after our brethren sat down and studied the Bible with him for a few hours, they changed that and started partaking of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Let me give you one final example of spiritual seed planting. In about 1948 through 1965, a couple of dozen missionaries American missionaries went to Italy I was one of those who went to Italy in fact there are now 45 churches of Christ approximately in Italy with roughly 1700 members scattered over that 60 million plus population one of the congregations that I will tell you about at this time my grandson worked for later Brandon Terry's son that's in Catania Sicily If you were to go there today, you would find about a hundred member, very active church, have their own building, support themselves, meeting and evangelizing and concerned about reaching out with the word. Now, they wouldn't sing holy, 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 but you'd recognize the music because it just goes santo, santo, santo. And you'd recognize it's holy, 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 translated into Italian. You would see them partaking of the Lord's Supper just like we do. You would see them, there approaching, having an eldership very probably before very long. And hopefully one of them will be a young man I taught in the Bible school that Terry knows very well also by the name of Aldo Malili. He's 50 some now and has a family of his own and does quite a bit of teaching and preaching also. They will soon have elders. You see, you take the same seed and you get the same plant. If you start it and add men's doctrines, you get a different result. In conclusion, just as material seeds produce after their kind, so does the spiritual seed, that is, the seed that is the word of God. But before I close, I want to close on this note. The early church taught incessantly. You know how you get plants to come up? Well, of course you do. You plant seed. You know why we're not getting as many plants to come up anymore? Even leaders in the church are not planting as many seeds. The early church planted that seed against great opposition, and they were not intimidated. In Acts, the fourth chapter, Peter and John were arrested and put in prison in Jerusalem. And they were told, ordered, chapter 4 and verse 18, to not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they answered, whether we ought to obey God or men, judge ye, verse 19. And they went right ahead teaching. But unfortunately, we let ourselves be intimidated sometimes. Sometimes it's by our left-leaning brethren who say, well, you just just shouldn't be so intolerant. If it's God's word and all I'm doing is repeating what he says, if somebody's intolerant, it would be God. And I guess I'll just take his say-so as to what's tolerant and what's intolerant. God help us to preach the word and scatter the seed, all of us. Not just elders, not just preachers, not just beacons. All of us are responsible for that word that will take people home to heaven. We're living in a world that so badly needs it. I close repeating some of the words of that song we sang earlier. Are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother, in the morning bright and fair? Are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother, in the heat of the noontide's glare? For the harvest time is coming on. And the reaper's work will soon be done. And so will your sheaves be many? Will you garner any in the day of judgment? God help us to work for him. He gave his son to die for us. You're here this morning and you're not a member of the church. God loves you. He invites you, come unto me through his son. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You come to God by having faith in your heart, believing in Him and His Word. Having faith in His Son as the Son of God. You confess His name. You repent of your sins. You're baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And then you're not a member of any denomination. You're a member of the church of the New Testament. Because you've responded to the seed that is the Word. It's germinated in you. And if you're a member of the body of Christ and you've let other things get in the way and really The Lord has been been treated like an old shoe in your life. You're not putting him first. You're not dedicating any time to it. Then you need to repent if it's been public and publicly known. Repent and pray. Acts the 8th chapter is the pattern there. Verses 21 and following. If you need to do that or you need to be baptized, come now as together we stand.